Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Today on Forum, the humble, or maybe not so humble, house cat. Evolutionary biologist Jonathan Lossus says, sure, they may be domesticated, but there's still a lot of wild in them, which might explain why their behaviors can be hard to decipher, even intimidating to some. But Lossus has unraveled many of their secrets. So this hour, we want to hear about all the weird and wonderful things your feline friends do. We'll try to tell you why. Join us. I wish I could be as carefree and wild, but I got cat class and I got cat style. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. For a long time, evolutionary biologist Jonathan Lossus didn't pay much scholarly attention to cats, even though he loved them, assuming there wasn't much research going on and that what little there was wasn't very interesting. Turns out, he says, he was wrong. Using kitty cameras, GPS tracking, and genome sequencing, scientists have learned lots of fascinating things about why they meow and purr, where outdoor cats go when they leave your home, and what it means when they stick their tails straight up. His new book is The Cat's Meow, How Cats Evolved from the Savannah to Your Sofa. Jonathan Lossus is Distinguished Professor of Biology at Washington University in St. Louis. Welcome to Forum, Jonathan. Thank you, Mina. I'm delighted to be here. Well, we are delighted to have you and to find out from you how cats did evolve to become such a popular animal companion. What did you learn about when and why they became domesticated? Well, when they became domesticated is somewhere between 4,000 years ago and 10,000 years ago, somewhere in the Middle East. Uh, we certainly know that cats were domesticated in Egypt by 3,500 years ago. We can see the paintings on tomb walls showing them acting like domestic cats. They were wearing collars, eating from dishes underneath dining room tables, going on family outings in marshes. So they were clearly domesticated by then. What we don't know is, did this happen at that time in Egypt, or were they domesticated earlier, perhaps somewhere else in the Middle East? The first archeological evidence of a cat and a human associated is 10,000 years ago, on the island of Cyprus near Turkey. Some people think that that indicates that domestication happened at that date. But to be honest, we just can't tell from those skeletal remains. So sometime between 10,000 and 4,000 years ago, 
cats were domesticated. Yeah, I was fascinated by the theory that it could be related to when humans started storing seeds and grains. Absolutely. That, that makes perfect sense. So what happened, this area is called the Fertile Crescent. It's basically where civilization first began, when people uh, changed from being mobile hunter-gatherers to settling down, building villages, and becoming farmers. And as you know, farmers, they grow as much food as they can in the good season and then store the rest for lean times. Now, if you think about a, uh, a village with a little hut full of grains or whatever crops they're growing, well, to rodents, that is just an unlimited bounty. And so the rodent population exploded. We know that from archaeological remains. Rats and, and mice became very common. In turn, this occurred in the range of a species called the African wildcat. Mm. This is a species that looks very much like a domestic cat. In fact, I, I like to say that if you looked out your kitchen window and saw a, 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 a African wildcat in your backyard, you wouldn't say, what's this African wildcat doing in Berkeley? <laughs> You'd say, what a cool looking cat. I've never seen one quite like it. So they really are almost indistinguishable in appearance from domestic cats. So anyway, they lived in this area. Suddenly, there are villages overflowing with rodents. Some of the cats, the ones that were perhaps bolder or more curious, were willing to enter the village and take advantage of what was there. So domestication started. We did, we, it's not like we tried to domesticate the cat. Rather, they took advantage of the, of the ample resources that we were indirectly providing. But you can imagine that people saw the benefit of having the cat, so maybe they put out some food for them. Maybe they gave them a warm, dry place to, to sleep. And the cats that, became, that were most willing to take advantage of that, to enter into the huts, to even let people touch them, they got the most benefits. And so they kept on evolving to basically to be happy to be around us. And as a result, eventually, you have the domestic cat. Yeah, and then they just start spreading far and wide. <laughs> exactly. They conquered the world from there. <laughs> so I love the description that the African wildcat probably doesn't look all that different from the cats of today, because it reminds me a little bit of a point that you made that I also found fascinating, which is that you say cats still have a lot of wild in them, or that maybe a better description than domesticated is semi-domesticated. Why? Well, if you look at, say, dogs, dogs are very different from wolves, the species from which they, they evolved. They're different in appearance. They're different in behavior. That is true of most domesticated species. Pigs look nothing like the swine they evolved from, cattle from the ancestral species, and so on. Cats just haven't changed very much. Their appearance is only slightly different. Their behavior is only slightly different. If we look at their genomes, there are very few genetic differences. So cats have not advanced very far down the domestication highway. Mm. Makes me think that's why some, some people, including one of our producers, find cats a little intimidating, um, that they still you know, aren't necessarily trying to be anything but the wild beings that they are. There's this comment from the listener, Steve, who writes, you can train a dog to entertain you. A cat will entertain you just by being a cat. Cats are much more intelligent than most people give them credit for. We have a 14-year-old black cat. He is not merely smart, he is wise. One time I was playing with him and he apparently got tired of being played with. He did not bite or scratch or even growl at me. He merely placed his paw across the back of my hand. I understood immediately what he meant by it. <laughs> well, I, I agree with those sentiments entirely, but I do want to add one thing to that, and that is cats actually are very trainable. 
People yes. th- think they aren't, but they're very motivated by food, and you can train them to do all kinds of tricks. There's, uh, there's a great uh, act called the Savitsky Cats that were on America's Got Talent where they train the cats to do remarkable things. <laughs> and you can even train a cat to use a toilet. Yeah. So, listeners, if you have trained your cat, we'd love to hear what you've done. You can email forum at kqed.org, call us at 866-733-6786, or post on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. Tell us the weird and wonderful things your cat does that maybe you want losses to try to explain if you don't understand it the way that Steve clearly understood his cat, or if you want to ask uh, Jonathan Loss's questions about how cats evolve, feel free to do that as well. You know, besides being trainable, I I also really appreciated your description of how they are quite sensitive to our needs and what we as humans respond to. And I felt like your section on why cats meow uh, really kind of drove that home because I was really fascinated to learn that cats don't meow much to each other, that they meow a lot to us. That was a surprise to me as well. I had anyone who, who's lived with a cat knows that they meow and they, they meow to us. They are trying to communicate with us clearly. I had always assumed that cats do the same to each other, that they communicate back and forth by meowing. But when scientists studied colonies of outdoor cats, they found that they don't meow very much at all. They make other sounds. They hiss and growl when necessary and so on, but they don't meow to each other. So that suggests that the meowing as a, as a way of communicating is something that evolved during domestication. Now, it turns out that all small species of felines, they all meow, um, but they don't meow to each other, and tame ones in zoos don't meow to people. So that's a, a trick that the domestic cat has picked up. And they picked it up because they thought it would be pleasing to us, that it would get them more of what they needed as well? Presumably so. Uh, One scientist did study the meow of the domestic cat and compared it to the meow of the African wildcat. And so he recorded the meows of both. And then he played them to people, didn't tell them what they were. And people could definitely tell the difference. And they found that the meow was much more pleasant to their ears. They found it a much more pleasing sound. And that suggests that domestic cats have have uh, changed their meow to make it something that we like to hear, to make it easier for them to, you know, basically tell us what they want. Will they actually differentiate their meow to different people in a household as well? Now, that is an interesting question, and I'm not sure that we know the answer to that. There, there are so many things we still don't know that scientists can go out and study. We do know that cats have, any given cat will have several different meows that it will make, different sounds. And the cat will use those different sounds in different situations. And the same scientist who studied the African wildcat's meow, he recorded cats in different, doing different things when they were about to be fed, when they were being stroked nicely, when they were being stroked backwards and aggravated. And so he recorded the different meows that a cat would make. And then he played those meows to people. So the question was, is there a specific meow that all cats make when they're hungry, say? or that all cats make when they want to be fed. Well, he played these recordings to people, the college students who were, they were you know, wearing headphones, they'd hear the, hear the meow, but they weren't told what the context, and they were asked to, to guess what it was. They were given five choices. And people were, were terrible at doing that. They, <laughs> um, they, they were no better than guessing randomly, with one exception. And that exception was that when a person listened to the cat that he or she lived with, 
They could tell you what that cat why what that cat was doing. Oh, you know, little Chester is hungry, or he's uh, he's aggravated because you're brushing him backwards. So cats and people do this this back and forth dance where they come to agree between themselves. This meow means this. This meow means that, and so on. Wow. Um, but each each cat has its own particular meow for particular situations. Wow. Well, Meredith tweets years ago. I told our vet that our cat had the most annoying meow to get let out. The vet told me that, of course she did. She figured out which meow got us off the couch to open the door for her. Annoying meow equals immediate action. That That is absolutely true. And there's actually a parallel that with that in that cats also have different purrs. And they have a particular loud chainsaw-like purr when they want something. It kind of goes, brum, brum, brum. And if you've ever... Uh, been feeding your cat, opening a, a, a can of wet food in the kitchen, you've heard that, that purring sound as it rubs against your legs. Well, a scientist uh, got the cats to make that sound. Uh, basically, he found people who fed their cats the first thing in the morning when they get up, which is a terrible idea. You're training your cat to get you up because they're hungry. But he found people who did that, and he told those people, on a particular day, I'm going to set up a microphone when your alarm goes off in the morning, do not get out of bed. And sure enough, within a moment, the cat would jump up on the bed, would position itself right next to the person's ears, and start this broom, 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 uh, uh, purring. And so the, the scientist recorded him those purrs and also recorded the purrs of content cats that were being pe uh, petted and compared those two purrs, looked at them digitally on the computer and looked at their audio spectrograms, and they could find uh, what the difference was, and the difference was similar to a baby crying. And so they argued, suggested, the cat has learned to purr in a way that we respond to very, very readily. Oh my gosh, by sounding similar to the way a baby cries. Wow. We are learning so many fascinating things about cats this hour, and we are learning them with Jonathan Lossus, who has written a new book called The Cat's Meow, How Cats Evolved from the Savannah to Your Sofa, and we'll have more with him after the break. Stay with us. You're listening to Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Everybody wants to be a cat Because a cat's the only cat Who knows where it's at Tell me everybody's picking up on that feline beat Because everything else is obsolete 
Welcome back to Forum, if you couldn't tell from the music. We're talking about cats this hour. Jonathan Loss's new book, The Cat's Meow, applies his evolutionary biologist lens to our domesticated friend. And you, our listeners, are sharing all the weird and wonderful things your cats do and asking questions about why, if you have them, and uh, or if you have questions about how cats evolved. You can ask us by calling 866-733-6786, email forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. Wendy writes, my friend's cat treats my hair like catnip and rolls around in it. (laughs) Nicole writes, I adore our cat Cleo. However, she thinks I'm a pillow and regularly sits on me. I assume she thinks she's the alpha in this dynamic. I want to ask you about some cat behaviors that you observed and some that I am now realizing from my own cats, what they're trying to communicate to me. And that was that uh, they are communicating something very specific when their tails stick straight up. Can you explain what they're doing here, Jonathan? Yes. So uh, when when a domestic cat sticks its tail straight up, usually it's walking towards you or to another cat, that basically means I'm friendly. I come in peace. It's a, a sign that uh, of friendliness. And the interesting thing about this signal they use is that there is only one other species of feline that does that. All, all other species of cats do not use this tail-up display, including the ancestor, the African wildcat. So this is a trait that evolved in domestic cats as a way of indicating friendliness. The interesting thing is that the other species that does that is the African lion. And the reason that this is particularly interesting is that lions live in groups. I think everyone's probably familiar with with prides of lions. There can be as many as 20 lions in a pride, although the number is usually smaller. And prides are composed of related females. And that's because females, when they grow up, they stay in the pride. So the, the females are all sisters or cousins and so on. And these lionesses are all extremely friendly to each other. They groom each other. They lie on top of each other. They play with each other. They'll even nurse each other's cubs. Mm -hmm. And so they're social in many ways. Well, the reason I point this out is that domestic cats in some situations are equally sociable. People think of domestic cats as being aloof, solitary, asocial animals, and that's not necessarily true. That in places where there are large populations of cats living together, they form into groups. And those groups are very similar to the prides of lions. They're composed of related females that are sisters or cousins and so on. And they do the same thing that lionesses do. They, they groom, they play, they nurse each other's kittens. There's, there are even reports of, of female domestic cats helping other ones give birth. And so they can be very sociable animals. So getting back to the tail, the thing is when you're living with a bunch of uh, other animals and, and one's approaching, you want to make sure that everyone understands your intentions. And so that's why the tail-up display has evolved in both species. It's basically you're walking towards another cat or a person and basically saying, I'm friendly, I come in peace, let's be buds. <laughs> I like the description of it as a flagpole signal in your book. Uh, let me go to caller Deanna next. Hi, Deanna, you're on. Hi, um, so my cat Charlotte is a gray cabbie. I've obviously taught her how to sit and give a high five. She also sits pretty um, because she is so food motivated. But one thing she does that I don't understand is she likes to bite my hand gently and it like puts her to sleep or into a trance. Um, and she won't do it to my husband. She doesn't like his hand. It's only my hand and it puts her to sleep. She's purring. She's like kneading a little. It's kind of like she's suckling, but 
take biting. So I don't know if it's an evolutionary thing. It seems something that would be painful to the mama cat. So not sure if you've ever seen this before, but everybody seems to be weirded out by it. <laughs> Thanks, Deanna. What do you think, Jonathan? Well, I, I have heard of such a thing. And I, let me change the question for a moment to talk about something else that was mentioned, which is kneading, cats kneading or making biscuits. Yeah. And um, basically, it's the it's that what happens is the cat will uh, will be standing on your stomach or maybe on a, a plush blanket, and it will alternately push down with its left foreleg and its right foreleg, left, right, left, right. And it seems like it's in a trance, and it will do that sometimes for several minutes. Uh, it can be both adorable and aggravating if they're doing it to you and their nails are sharp, uh, but it, it's, it's very sweet. And eventually the cat will curl up on a ball and go to sleep. And so this is done by adult domestic cats. And it's the only species of cat, as far as we're aware, that does this. Well, kittens of all species or cubs of lions will, will do this when they're nursing. They're, they're, they're nursing from their mother and they will do that to her belly. And the thought is that uh, it helps stimulate the flow of milk. And so the idea with domestic cats is that for some reason they have retained this juvenile behavior into the adult stage, that you might say that they are treating treating you as their mother. That might be going a little far. Some people have suggested that. But it certainly is a sign of contentment and trust. And so I would suggest that this, this gentle biting is something similar, that they're obviously not trying to hurt you. I, I can't tell you where that comes from, but it's a way of, of trying to create a bond between the cat and you. Yeah, it's really lovely. Um, and it's I, I actually had to play one of our producers a video of the kneading because they weren't familiar that cats do this. And it really is a, such a an interesting and unique feature of the cat. Becky and Kathy write, our male cat, Newbie, is a big lug who has taken to biting our heads. We, he gets up on one of our pillows in the early morning and bites and pulls our hair. Kind of painful. When we get up, he often has an ecstatic love fest with the pillow hugging and kicking it and purring loudly kind of sounds like kneading to me. He doesn't seem hungry. What's up with that? Do you think that's related to making biscuits? I, you know, uh, there's so much that we that we don't, <laughs> don't know, know and, so. and that is so hard to study scientifically. Because yes. cats my, are so hard to, are they so elusive, you mean, or hard to really? Well, it's just, it's just, you know, to figure out how did, how did a trait like this evolve or what is, <laughs> what is going on in the, the neural hardwiring of the cat's head that, that to do this, it, it's very difficult to, to actually ask, to scientifically study how this might occur or why it occurs. Um, in the case of, of what was just described, I, I don't know about the biting of the head, but cats are very, uh, very smell-oriented, and I suspect that the cat is rubbing in in uh, the, the person's scent, that, you know, the person has been sleeping on the pillow, mm. and he's probably trying to rub in it because he finds that scent very comforting. Or wow. he might be trying to rub his scent on the person's <laughs> scent. Wow. Well, this is... Yeah, go ahead. When a cat rubs up against you with its mouth or or its side, it's putting its scent on you, basically uh, marking you as some as someone that the cat hangs out with. Well, this listener tweets: I recently got a new cat who was rehomed to me. His name is Kofi or Coffee. This cat tries to get in the shower with me. He jumped in very briefly once, and now just sits in between the shower liner and shower curtain. <laughs> wow. Well, Coffee obviously loves her. Um, <laughs> Some cats, you know, we think that cats hate water, but not all of them do. There are some breeds of cats that are quite happy to be in water. And, of course, some species of felines, like the jaguar and the tiger, uh, get in the water all the time. 
Well, we are getting your cat questions and stories at 866-733-6786. Let me go to Marash in Oakland. Hi, Marash. Join us. You're on. Hey, good morning. Um, so two things. I uh, noticed the poll, the polling of the tail also happens uh, with my kitty cat, seven months old. And then um, when he approaches, he does that, say that, mm. hey, hey, I'm here, I'm peaceful. And then the second thing is, uh, is um, he's been trained by himself that he knows that when uh, my dog and I are going out and he wants to join us, so he comes forward, sits in front of me and let me put, put the harness on him. And then he only does that when we want to go out. Otherwise, if we are just inside the house, he wouldn't let me uh, put anything tight on him. Well, I'm not surprised at that second story. Cats are very smart, and they can read the room, if you will, figure out what's going on, and have the, the proper response. Um, I want to say one more thing about the tail-up display, because uh, there's a very clever experiment scientists did to confirm that that's a friendly gesture. And it's a kind of interesting, because something I didn't know, if a cat is introduced into a room and sees a silhouette of a cat pasted to the wall, it will think it's a real cat. Now, once they see this, they learn, they learn that it's just a ruse. But the first time it happens, they will treat it as a real cat. And so taking advantage of this, some scientists put a silhouette of a black cat with its tail up on the wall or the same black cat but with the tail down. And when the tail was up, the, the cat that was introduced would put its own tail up and immediately walk right up most of the time. But when the tail was down, the cat would not put its tail up, would, would approach much more slowly, and would also wiggle its tail back and forth, which is a sign of nervousness and uncertainty. So clearly, the tail up is something that cats respond to. Huh. Well, I think Barbara has a question about cats' tails. Barbara, you're on. Oh, yes, thank you. I've always adopted shelter cats, so any cat I discuss is, is one that we've uh, adopted. I've even adopted a part East South Asian or South Asian uh, jungle cat mix, and that cat has become a Chaucy cat that's honored by the Fanciers Association. Um, I have a cat now that's a gingy cat, an orange female, and she knows words, up to 10 words. She knows, she looks at the things if I say, say the word. She really reads my emotions. She talks constantly. She responds always to whatever I say to her. So I'm amazed by how smart they are. Now she's learned to push doors open if they're not securely latched. So that becomes a security uh, problem. But I, 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 they're amazing. That's, they're absolutely amazing, and I'm enjoying your program. Thank oh, you. Oh, thanks. Um, I thought you had a question, Barbara, about why they swing their tails back and forth. Is that something that you haven't deciphered yet? And, yeah. and she's not in stress or anything like that either. So I have to be careful that she doesn't sweep things off the counter and, mm. and, and pens off the table. And you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So what about that, Jonathan, the, the swinging back and forth that well, can actually knock stuff off? You know, the cats, cat, I've seen that happen myself. And we don't fully understand sometimes why, they, why they're doing things with their tails. I mean, certainly... I think people are familiar with the nervous lashing back and forth that they will use where the, the meaning is obvious. Um, in a similar situation, many people have probably seen a cat that is stalking a prey, a bird or a squirrel or something. As it's all poised to, to launch its attack, its tail will, will wiggle. And that makes no sense at all because it certainly can't help it 
hunt the, you know, it might be, if the bird sees it, it'll fly away. So why they do that has always been a mystery. And the idea is it's just some nervous energy that has to find a release somewhere because mm-hmm. they're all pent up, they're ready to go. And, they, you know, they got this energy, but they're not quite ready to jump. Now, that doesn't explain just a calm cat kind of gently uh, swishing its tail back and forth. I'm not sure what it means. Well, Jesse writes, when I was little, our family had a cat named Dog (laughs) who responded to our family whistle. He would run to the door from his adventures outside to acknowledge our whistle. Um, You can share if you have thoughts about what Jesse's cat was doing, but I do want to ask you about the indoor versus outdoor thing with cats. We keep our cats indoors and we were told very clearly by our cat adoption agency to do this. But I can't help but wonder if it's bad for like a cat's psychic well-being to keep them indoors their whole lives. Well, this is a great question and there's a lot of uh, difference of opinion on that. There are a number of reasons why keeping cats indoors is a good idea. Uh, First, it's better for the cats. They're not going to get run over by a car. They're not going to get eaten by a coyote, which happens quite a lot. They're not going to pick up a disease. So it's good for the cats in in terms of their health. It's also good for the environment. We know that cats go outside and they hunt. And, you know, they they, some cats kill a lot of a lot of animals. They can also spread diseases, particularly one called toxoplasmosis. They can pick it up, but then they can spread it to other wildlife or even to people. So for all those reasons, keeping a cat indoors is a good thing. On the other hand, as we've just heard from all these stories, cats are really intelligent animals. They need mental stimulation. And so if you, so there are people who argue that cats need to go outside. At least some cats do. And, you know, there's a difference of opinion here. The Brits, the British, let their cats out much more than we do. And the opinion of scientific groups there is that cats should be outside because that's the natural cat way. Now, people here in the United States generally don't agree with that. And it's that's not a scientific uh, debate. It's people's judgment. But certainly there are some cats that demand to go outside. And cats that grow up outside are very tough to uh, transform into indoor cats. But the one last thing I would say is... If you're going to keep your cat inside, you've got to give it a lot of mental stimulation, what zoos now call behavioral enrichment. You need to have lots of toys. You need to play with the cat. You need to give the cat high perches because they like to get above things to look down, uh, places to hide, boxes to jump in, and so on. Where are the cats going, the outdoor cats going? You have read about and I think even conducted experiments about uh, where they go. You put cameras on them, GPS trackers, so on. So it's such is, a mystery. Yeah, well, this, so, I, you know, anyone who's tried to follow a cat knows it's impossible. As soon as they figure, you, figure out what you're doing, they give you the shake and, the, and you don't see them again. But with new technology, scientists have been able to study them by putting little trackers on them or even little cameras that they wear around their collar that you can get a cat's eye view of what they're doing outside. And so scientists started doing that. And now there are commercial products that anyone can have. And they show that cats uh, do... Most cats stay close to home. They don't go that far. But a few cats go on long adventures. And cats do, you know, they do a lot of cat-like things. They're curious. They go poking their heads into things. They do a lot of stupid things. They cross roads all the time. I mean, anyone, you, you can just see how dangerous it is by following, if your cat goes outside, you'll see they cross roads. Not a good idea. Um, they go into storm drainage uh, culverts, which is very dangerous if there's a heavy fl- flood. 
They eat stuff they find. I mean, who knows what it is they're eating? They drink from puddles of who knows what. Uh, they run into other cats. They run into opossums. Um, so, the, the, you know, the one message I got from these kitty camera studies is it really is dangerous for a cat being outside because there are lots of hazardous things that they do. Hmm. And why a lot of people point to their lifespan uh, versus a an indoor cat. Well, this listener tweets, I once encountered my cat along a path over a mile from our home. He was in, quote, wild mode, a totally different animal, and wouldn't come to me. Hours later, upon his return, he was his usual self. Huh. Is this related to the fact that there's still a lot of wild in them, as we talked about earlier? Or what do you think is going on here? Well, I, I think it is. And, you know, you can imagine for a cat that spends a lot of time inside that uh, being outside is sensory overload. Uh, there, you know, there are all these things, smells, sounds, and so on. And it's, they're unfamiliar. It's a, I'm sure it's a scary. And so I could imagine that a cat is, uh, is just in a different zone outside. And, and if, if the person that lives with comes up, just might not recognize them. Now, as well, uh, cat's distance vision isn't great. And so it's possible that the cat doesn't even recognize the person if at a distance. And finally, of course, it's a cat. It might have said, look, this is my time off. Leave me alone. What are you doing here? <laughs> Lisa writes, I have two former ferals rescued from my backyard. They were both young, though past ideal socialization age when they came in. Now, eight years later, they continue to evolve. They're still terrified of everyone except my housemate and me. One loves to be brushed, but still doesn't like to be touched. The other was afraid of the TV for a year, and it took him two years to sleep on my bed. Ferals are difficult pets, but I love watching them continue to evolve after all these years. I mean, that really is how we are getting our cats uh, these days, right? That we're rescuing ferals yes. and, and we're coming up on a break. So sorry to have to make this quick. Yes, that's where most, most pet cats in the United States are neutered, which means they're not producing more cats. So the pets that people get from shelters and pet stores are rescue cats that are living outside and people, kind-hearted people rescue them and, and adopt them, adopt them out. We'll have more with Jonathan Lossis, distinguished professor of biology at Washington University in St. Louis and author of the new book, The Cat's Meow, How Cats Evolve from the Savannah to Your Sofa. And we'll have more with you, our listeners, right after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary.
Welcome back to Forum. We're with leading evolutionary biologist Jonathan Lossus this hour, who is sharing everything he knows about our feline friends, which he's put in a book called The Cat's Meow, How Cats Evolve from the Savannah to Your Sofa. And you, our listeners, are sharing your cat questions, your cat experiences, your thoughts about their evolution at forum at kqed.org. That's our email address on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at KQED Forum and by calling us 866-733-6786. Ede in Berkeley, you're on. Thanks for waiting. Hi, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. First, as a proud Egyptian, I should say that the ancient Egyptians loved cats. They <laughs> prayed for cats. Cats were goddess, like Passet. Also, there is not thousands, there is tens of thousands beautifully modified cats uh, in Egypt. Yeah, until today, they find them all the time, tens and tens and tens. Uh, look at the Egyptian art, many of it beautiful, just really beautiful um, vision of their cats. One other thing is that the name of a, of a cat in ancient Egypt was Meow. Now, what is more amazing is that it was almost capital punishment to hurt a cat. Mm. If, if, and uh, it really was. The other thing is if a family cat dies, all members in the family shave their eyebrows. Everybody, so if you visit your neighbor and they have no eyebrows or the shaved eyebrows, that means their cat have died, have passed away. Well, last wow. thing I like to say is that as broad Egyptian also, I have shared my house in Euclid with 12 cats. Each one of them had her or his own name. And uh, they were beautiful. I miss them because unfortunately, uh, I had to go somewhere and I had to, uh, mm. to give them to my friend. But, uh, you know, one warning people living in Berkeley Hills, be careful of raccoons. Two of my cats were killed by raccoons mm. in my own yard. Uh, so be very careful. Raccoons are oh. the most dangerous yeah. thing in, in the health. Well, Ed, I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm so yes. sorry to hear that your cats were killed by the raccoons. I can really hear your reverence for the cats, which can be kind of striking sometimes when you juxtapose it with how some people at least talk about cats, which is that they really are overly abundant, um, Jonathan Lossus. Can you just tell us a little bit about cat cat breeding? Um, they, they do have babies quite often, right? Or they can, at least. Yes, absolutely. Uh, a female cat can give birth at six months of age or possibly even a little earlier. And in really uh, good conditions with lots of food, they could have litters, three litters a year. So uh, a a unfixed cat, an unneutered cat, can produce a lot of kittens very quickly. And so can you talk <clears throat> a little bit about how cats are changing? You, you mentioned about how ferals, we're taking ferals mm -hmm. out of the environment. And you made an interesting point in your book about how if we're taking the more agreeable cats, the wildcat population could actually be sort of over um, disproportionately with cats that are a little bit more on the aggressive side? Well, yes, or at least the l l less social side. Um, less social side. Uh, yeah, well, in, in the sense that since pet cats are not breeding because they've been neutered, uh, we, we might imagine we're going to make a cat that's even better for living inside, one that like, doesn't like to go outside, doesn't like to hunt, and so on. But to do that, you have to... You have to uh, you have to select those cats and breed them. But we're not breeding our pet cats. We are getting our cats from feral cat populations. And y you can think, which cats do they catch? They catch the cats that are more willing to let people get close to them or more willing to go into a trap or something like that, which means that the cats that are staying outside 
are the ones that are the wariest ones, the ones that want to have as little to do with people as possible. Well, this is natural selection. We are favoring those traits. And so we would expect feral cat populations to be evolving to be less less sociable with humans, more wary, not wanting to be around us. Now, there's only been a tiny amount of research done on this question, but it's a, a topic that really should be investigated. Well, I, I'm struck by, for a long time, humans have always tried to breed and create cats that are more to their liking. You have pointed out some more recent cat breeds are cause for concern. Can you talk about a couple of them, maybe one not so recent when we think about the Persian, but just a couple of them and how you're concerned about about what we're breeding them to be and maybe not really thinking about the well-being of the cat itself. Yes, absolutely. And this occurs, of course, with dogs as well. But there are some breeds whose characteristics are unhealthy for the animal. And the obvious example is the Persian cat. Um, in the, mid in the, mid uh, the mid-1940s and 50s, Persian cats look like regular cats. There is a great National Geographic article that shows them, and they look just like a normal cat. Today, the Persian cat basically has no nose. It has two nostrils, and those nostrils are between its eyes, not below them. And think where your nostrils are. Uh, the, the, the nose has gone away. The nostrils have moved between the eyes. Now, why people have selected cats for this isn't clear to me. Uh, they, some people think they look very sweet. They have a cute baby-like face. Uh, but the fact is that by getting rid of the nose, these cats have all kinds of breathing difficulties and also problems with their tear ducts and also the whole head has been re reshaped, and so the brain has been changed in ways that are probably not good. So the characteristics of the modern Persian cat produces unhealthy cats. Now, the same thing is true of dogs with pugs and English bulldogs and so on. And we really shouldn't be producing uh, breeds that produce unhealthy, unhealthy animals. Now, there are many breeds where the, the animals are perfectly healthy. It doesn't really matter that they have curly hair or a particular color or whatever. But some of the breeds are problematic, and they, that really can't be, can't be condoned. Like the twisty cats. Ah, oh, the twisty cats. Now, that's not a breed, but yeah. it's a, a mutation right. where the cats were born without bones in their forelegs. And so they would hop around like kangaroos and had all kinds of problems. And this is the mutation that pops up from time to time. And I think it was in the 1990s, word got out that some people in Texas wanted to breed these cats to produce cats, more twisty cats, because they thought it was adorable. Now, fortunately, the, the, the world came down on them and they, they backed off on that. But, I mean, what a horrible idea. What do you think is the future of cat breeds, just based on looking at them in the past and present? Well, there's, there's two things I would say. One is that increasingly uh, a, a odd mutation comes up that produces a different-looking cat, and some people find that the difference ap appealing. And so there are some... Very odd-looking cats out there. There's one called the Lycoi, which has patchy, uh, patchy, wiry-looking hair that falls out every six months. And they're nicknamed the werewolf cat. Um, now, it doesn't hurt the cat. Anyway, they've created a breed out of that mutation. There's also a cat called the Munchkin cat that has very short legs. It's the corgi of cats. And um, they are actually kind of cute in a way. And again, it apparently doesn't cause any health problems. So... We can just differ on whether uh, producing a, those sorts of cats is worth doing or not. There is one positive possibility, however, and it goes, it's the opposite of what we were talking about a minute ago. Because of the issue of cats 
hunting and killing prey, and just the fact that so many cats live in apartments and small places, we would really like a cat that didn't really want to go outside, that was happy lying around a lot. And we could produce that. that. One thing that has shown us in domestication is by selecting on animals with traits that we like, we can, we can cause evolutionary change to occur and we can produce breeds with the traits that we want. So if somebody really tried hard just to produce cats that didn't like to go outside, didn't want to hunt, that were happy just to sit on the couch a lot, it could probably be done. In fact, there are some breeds that are more placid than others. So breeds like that would be very useful for modern living in many contexts. I imagine that's pretty controversial still, though, right, or that it can draw controversy. Well, there are, there, the flip side of that is that there are people who are saying that there are, there are too many cats in shelters looking for a home, that no one should be intentionally breeding cats because there are enough cats that need a home already. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it's, there, there are two sides of an argument. Certainly there is truth to that. But there are reasons that people want a cat that has a predictable behavior. And that's what breeds do. With breeds, they, you can be very confident what your cat is going to be like as opposed to a cat that you barely know that you adopt. And so those are the two sides. And I understand where both sides are coming from. Yeah. Renee writes, is it true that cats are responsible for causing the most species to be extinct next to humans? They've caused a lot of species to be extinct, um, the most perhaps, and this has occurred in places on, on oceanic islands and in places like Australia where cats don't naturally occur and where the native animals have no experience with a cat-like predator. Cats are brilliant, per- perfect, well, not per- they're very good predators. And when they, uh, experience, when they encounter prey that have no experience with them, the prey don't have a chance. And so cats have wiped out many seabird colonies on remote islands and a lot of the native, wonderful native species in Australia. So, yes, in some places, cats have been a real problem. Well, certainly sounds like cats are resilient and they aren't going anywhere. (laughs) That's for sure. (laughs) Let me see if I can squeeze Anita in. Hi, Anita. You're on. Hi. Hi there. You're you're Um, on. Go right ahead. Great. Uh, Number one is I have a polydactyl. Cat named Mr. Spock, and I'm wondering what the genesis is of that or how that came about other than Ernest Hemingway. And then I have one other quick question is about 30 minutes before I get home every day from work, my husband says my cats start to go crazy if they know that I'm coming. And I'm wondering (laughs) if that's a real thing. Thanks, Anita. Do you come home at the same time every day? Oops. Sorry. Oh, well, well, Anita's mic is down. Let's assume Anita does. Cats get to know a 24-hour cycle. They, if you feed them at the same time, a, f- a little, a few minutes before that, they know it's food time. So um, I can imagine that they know this is the time that Anita comes home, and I'm looking forward to seeing her. Um, a polydactyl cat is a cat that has an extra a digit on its. I think it's usually on its forefeet, and that does happen. It's a mutation. It's a similar to the mutation that sometimes calls, causes that in humans. And some people prefer that trait. It's neither beneficial nor problematic for the cat. And so some people have intentionally bred polydactyl cats. Uh, Anita referred to Hemingway in his home on Key West. He had a particular fondness for polydactyl cats. And so his, uh, his home, and today the Hemingway Museum, has lots of them wandering around on, on the grounds. We're learning lots of fascinating things about cats with Jonathan Lossus. His new book is The Cat's Meow. This is a fundraising period for many public radio stations, and you are listening to Forum. Thank you. I'm Mina Kim. 
Well, uh, Jonathan, let me go next to Art in Santa Rosa. Hi, Art. You're on. Yes, hi. Oh, this is a wonderful show. Very informative. Uh, I would like to um, ask the author about uh, nutrition in cats. I have a friend who was feeding a feral cat uh, for a long time. Apparently, he lived to be 20 years old, and she was feeding him nothing but low-grade food, junk, uh, friskies or meow mix or that. And he lived to be 20. On the other hand, some folks will have uh, perfectly good nutrition for their cats, and the cat will die earlier. So um, I'd like to get that question uh, addressed. And the uh, last thing I'd like to say is I'd give a big shout-out to Forgotten Felines of Sonoma County who um, spay neuter cats and then offer them up for adoption. That's um, pro-adoption at shelters. So thank you very much. Well, I've heard of... I've heard of forgotten felines, and groups like that do wonderful work. Uh, the people are so committed and so generous with their time, and it's wonderful that people are looking out for these cats and trying to take care of them. Um, in terms of nutrition, this is a very controversial topic, and uh, there are some people who who say that you should only feed cats raw raw meat or particular diets. Um, there are others who are dubious of these claims, and the science behind a lot of it isn't uh, of the more extreme claims these days isn't very, very sound, or there isn't a lot of it. Uh, it is true that cats have very specific needs. They need for certain minerals and, and uh, amino acids, and for a long time, most cat foods didn't contain, uh, contain them. However, there has been research that has come up with the, the optimal diet. And so, you know, like in many things, I think this is similar to human, well, the foods we eat, um, there are things that we need that are good for us and things that clearly aren't. A diet of nothing but Cheerios and uh, Diet Coke probably isn't very good for you. But lots of the claims that people make about very specific diets, uh, you know, I can't even come up with some of them, are probably not, they're, they're not founded in science. Uh, so I, so I'm not a nutritionist. I do know there's a lot of, of ideas out there and a lot of debate about them. Um, and, you know, one cat is different from another. That's why one cat can thrive on a diet and another one might have problems. Let me go to caller Steve next in Oregon. Hi, Steve. You're on. Hello. Not a current cat owner. I now have a dog, but I had many cats throughout the years. And I would like to offer some potential answers to some of the questions that were unanswered in the show and be interested in a response. One is the switching tail. What is the purpose of the switching tail? With my cats, I used to follow them around. They got very used to me being with them. And one would switch, and the other one knew right away that it was on a hunt. And there was a high hmm. probability that it would follow close behind. So the switching tail may be, and I'm not saying it is, a communication between them. The other thing was afraid of water. The smaller cats don't have the body weight to dry themselves, whereas the large cats do. So that's why they're afraid of water. And the same thing with small dogs. They're actually afraid of water because they can't get dry without the aid of human. And I do study the animals. I'm an AI researcher and author. So I'm always learning, <laughs> trying to learn what I can. So well, that's my offering to the show. <laughs> well, thanks for your offering, Steve. I appreciate it. Um, Sarah writes, I adopted a one-year-old polydactyl cat with six or seven toes on each foot, and I swear she's the most intelligent cat I've ever had. Plus, she does things with her paws, opening cupboards, picking up toys, almost as if she had 
opposable thumbs. Another listener tweets, our cats trill more often than meow. Meow seems reserved for times when they are upset or being emphatic. Uh, another listener, Chris, writes, Our backyard is a neighborhood cat hangout. We have five to six different cats that come to our backyard. I love cats, but they never come to me and always run away. How can I share my yard with these cats and be friendly with them? Can I encourage them to poop in the same place? Should I feed them? Should I catch them and take them to a vet? Well, those are all really interesting observations. And I have to remark that the thought of a cat with opposable thumbs is pretty scary. I mean, they get up to <laughs> enough mischief without them. Uh, the thought of what they could do is... Uh, it's a little mind-boggling. Uh, the last question about sharing the backyard with the cats. Um, certainly, if you put out food, you will get more cats, and you'll get the ones that come out uh, hanging around more. Now, whether that's a good idea or not, um, it depends on the circumstances. It wasn't clear whether these are pet cats that, that live in some other house and just hang out, or whether these are, uh, these are stray cats that don't have a home. Um, I don't know that you can... Well, if you put out kitty litter, they might use it. Of course, the great, the great outdoors is one big kitty litter box for a cat. Uh, True. So I, I'm, I'm not sure what to advise on that. Well, we're coming right up to the end of the hour. I know you have a lot of cats. And I am curious if do, writing this book has deepened or improved your own relationship with your cats. Oh, John. absolutely. I've, uh, I've learned so much about cats. And I've also paid extra attention to them as well. And so, yes, it has, it has really heightened my appreciation. And I have to say, though, that one of my cats, Nelson, is featured in the book, and I think it's gone to his head. I think he thinks he's a big celebrity now. Why? What's he doing really fast? Oh, he's just being, you know, very haughty and expecting extra treats and so on. <laughs> cats are wise. They know what you're doing, Jonathan. Who knows if he can even read your book? I remember Nelson very much. Nelson is the source of a lot of my questions. Uh -huh. Yes, he's you're in the index. Nelson. Well, Jonathan, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Mina. This has been a great, a great pleasure. Jonathan Lossus, his new book is The Cat's Meow, How Cats Evolved from the Savannah to Your Sofa. Thanks, listeners, for sharing all the wonderful and weird things your cats do and for your questions as well. My thanks also to Caroline Smith for producing today's segment. You have been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have got 
gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.